production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Lavelle Custer, president of the Woodruff Foundation and a proud City Club member. It is, I am pleased to introduce our speaker, the Irving Phillips Professor of Epidemiology and Psychiatry at Columbia University Medical Center and renowned suicidologist, Dr. Madeline Gould. According to the Center for Disease Control, over the past 20 years, the rate of deaths by suicide has increased by almost 33%, shaking communities around the country to their core. Furthermore, death by suicide has risen to become the second leading cause of death for teens and young adults. Even more striking is the correlation between rises in suicide, suicidal actions and media coverage of suicide, especially among young people, a phenomenon referred to as suicide contagion. While the idea of suicide contagion has been observed for centuries, recent coverage of high-profile deaths of suicide, by suicide and entertainment around the topic, such as the controversial Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why, have led to increased awareness and conversation around this social phenomenon. Dr. Gould is a national expert on suicide contagion, suicide prevention, and youth suicide risk. In addition to her position at Columbia University Medical Center, she is also a research scientist directing a unit in the Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Department of New York State Psychiatric Institute. Her research in suicide prevention has received continuous federal funding from the National Institute of Health, the Centers for Disease Control, and the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Dr. Gould holds a bachelor's degree in psychology from Brooklyn College, a master's in psychology from Princeton University, and a master's in public health and PhD in epidemiology with distinction from Columbia University. She has served on various state federal committees, including the Surgeon General's Leadership Working Group for the National Suicide Prevention Strategy, and she has helped found the New York State Suicide Prevention Council. Esteemed guests and members of the City Club, please join me with me in welcoming Dr. Madeline Gould. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to speak with you um, today. I really am honored, and thank you for that lovely introduction. There are many causes um, for suicide, and I'll be talking about suicide contagion, but I you know, want to highlight that this is one piece of a much larger puzzle and that strategies to prevent suicide have to involve many, many um, different uh, aspects and populations, and that I certainly consider this very important, but again, it's, it's one, one piece. And so today, um, I will be talking about the spread of suicide contagion and possible ways to contain it 
all my work is always focusing on what can we do about the problem? You know, we want to raise awareness about a problem, and then equally or more importantly, then, you know, what do we do about it? So I'll first start with the, um, you know, the definition of suicide contagion, sometimes called suicide modeling. And it's the process by which knowledge of one person's suicide facilitates the occurrence of a subsequent suicide. So it can be through direct knowledge of the person, you know the person, or you find out indirectly, either through the media or from uh, someone else that you, that you know who became aware of the suicide. And that the, um, the idea that suicide can be, quote, contagious, shouldn't come as a surprise when you think of it in a broader context of emotional contagion or behavioral contagion um, or social contagion, that social behaviors, we influence each other. And so I um, wanted to first just give an example of an instance of emotional contagion. And this was an experiment that, was, that involved the Facebook um, news feed in 2012, and that um, the news feeds were randomly altered for almost 700,000 um, uh, users of Facebook so that their, the posts were either negative or positive that were sent to the, the folks on um, Facebook. And then they examined what were the subsequent um, posts that the recipients received. So if they received a negative post, they were more apt to then post a negative feed on their, you know, on their own Facebook pages. They received a positive feed, news feed, then no matter what they were posting about, it would tend to be more, more positive. And I wanted to just show this so that the idea of suicide contagion would not seem as, uh, we're, more familiar with it now, but people are still reluctant to really believe that someone's suicide could influence someone else's suicide. And here in this, um, you know, somewhat controversial experiment, not conducted by me, we won't, that can be a question and answers what made it controversial, but in any case, it did show, and so that for folks like me, I can use it as an example of, look, this is where our emotions get um, influenced by each other. <clears throat> With regard to suicide contagion, though, the research evidence comes from three main sources of um, research. It, research that focuses on the impact of exposure to a suicidal peer. So someone in the community, a friend, a peer, dies by suicide. And then there's been research to see what the impact is. Research on the impact of the media on subsequent suicide and on suicide clusters. And there is quite a bit of research in each of those three areas. Given the time limitations of today's uh, presentation, I'm going to be focusing on the impact of the media, which is why I highlighted it, highlighted it on this slide. <clears throat> but during the Q&A, well, you can feel free to ask me about anything, but I'll hopefully have answers to the areas of impact of exposure to a suicidal peer and suicide clusters if you want me to you know, answer some questions about that as well. We don't know why 
um, suicide contagion occurs. There are a number of mechanisms that have been hypothesized, some um, supported by research, and some that might be, you know, that uh, research is alive and fluid, and that things that we don't know today, hopefully we'll know tomorrow. But these hypothesized mechanisms, number one, they're not mutually exclusive. They could all be occurring at the same time to different degrees. One involves social learning theory, whereby you learn by witnessing someone engage in that behavior. And much of our learning is done that way, by, by identifying with a model, by um, feeling connected to a model, and then um, engaging in that same behavior, or language, and so on. What, you know, why you pick up the language of the culture that you're in. Um, another mechanism involves approach avoidance conflict. That's what it's been called, where there's already some tension, that it's a, a balance between you have vulnerabilities, you're already motivated to engage in suicidal behavior, but something's keeping you back. And that the exposure to someone else's suicide may tip that balance so that it reduces the restraint. Um, another mechanism involves what's been called a social multiplier in that it amplifies the effects of other suicide risk factors. And then exposure, more and more we're starting to think, can actually change social norms about what is typical behavior. And that, again, for any of these slides, if there are questions, just, um, you know, we'll save it for the Q&A. But the more that people think that a behavior is typical or uh, prevalent, the more likely they're going to be to engage in that behavior. Um, and so you can think what the ramifications of that hypothesis you know, or change in social norms may be. So I'm now going to be focusing on the impact of the media. And now I'm talking about not one study or two study or three studies, I'm talking about 70 studies, I mean really an abundance of research that has shown that an increase, and now I'm talking about deaths, suicide deaths, that the likelihood of a subsequent suicide occurring um, increases when the frequency of stories about the suicide increases, and that's called a dose-response effect. When a higher proportion of the population is exposed, when, high, when headlines are dramatic, when the story is prominent, and then by prominent, you know, perhaps on the first page. And this has been termed, this increase has been termed the Werther effect. And as has been um, mentioned, the idea that suicide can influence somebody else's suicide or be contagious goes back, um, and this is an ex where the Werther effect um, where it emanated from, that in 1774, uh, Goethe wrote The Sorrows of Young Werther. And following the publication of that novel, imitative suicides were occurring in Germany, in Denmark, and Italy. And that's why an investigator, um, David Phillips, when he started studying suicide contagion in the 1970s, he's the one who termed the, um, this phenomenon, the, the Werther effect, based on his knowledge about this, what had happened in Europe after the publication of this book. And that young Werther had died by suicide in the book after a romantic um, <clears throat> failure. 
and that there were young men dressing in the garb that Werther had dressed and had his, you know, the book with them when they died by, by suicide, so that they were starting to imitate the, you know, the method as well as um, the, um, the circumstances of the, of the death. More recently, um, and as it you know, was noted, that recent celebrities' suicides have now been researched. And um, there was a publication that came out in 2018 that showed there was a significant increase in um, suicide deaths in the months following Robin Williams' death by suicide and that the increase was about 10% above what you would have um, expected, you know, from looking at those time periods in other, um, you know, in other years. And that um, it was mentioned that the Netflix series 13 Reasons Why, I thought it was worth mentioning, when it was first released in March of 2017, those of us in the suicide prevention community were really quite concerned about it for a number of reasons. I'd actually been exposed to this book about a decade before. I have a colleague, a child psychiatrist, who brought it to my attention because patients of hers, young patients of hers, were bringing it into their appointments saying that that book was sort of triggering ideas that they may have had already. You know, I'm not saying suicide contagion is not going to occur in a vacuum. People are going to have a vulnerability. They have already been thinking about suicide. But there are a lot, the vast majority of people who are suicidal don't go on to attempt suicide, don't go on to die by suicide. So we had concerns about this um, series. And I have to admit that I was dismayed when I had learned that it was going to be coming out because I had been. I had read it a decade, you know, about a decade before, and anecdotally, based on our, you know, my colleagues' patients, thought, I'm not sure this is a great um, series, but I thought, you know what? We need to raise awareness about suicide. We can't keep it in a closet. And that maybe they will have shaped this um, series in a way that it would be useful. And then I watched it, and so did my colleagues, and we realized, Number one, suicide is presented as a way to solve problems. It glamorizes and romanticizes suicide. Um, the suicide was by a very, very appealing um, young girl in the, in the series. It didn't address mental illness. It didn't address alternatives to suicide. It presented help seeking as a fruitless activity and that the adults in this young woman's life were really ineffectual. You know, they just didn't, not because they were bad people, but they were, as they would say, clueless, you know, even though she tried to get their attention. And then there was a graphic depiction of suicide. So there was a um, research study that came out very, very shortly after the release. Mortality data wasn't, you know, mortality data is usually available about two years after the actual death. And so what, and they really were somewhat ingenious, they used Google Trends. They wanted to see how, um, whether the searches on Google 
increased after the series. And they, um, so they looked at a period before and after the series, and that they did find that all suicide queries did increase by about 19% in the um, 19 days following the release. And that this included queries about how to commit suicide, which increased 26% from you know, other periods before the, the release, um, and how to commit suicide, 18%. But they also saw that the searches for suicide hotlines were elevated by 12%, and suicide prevention increased by 23%. So when we saw that, we said, okay, you know, it raised awareness. You have to wonder at what cost, but maybe it had saved people's lives as, as well. But again, at what cost? Unfortunately, what we found much more recently, because these are studies that have just been published, um, for the most part within the past few months, now that the mortality data is out, that um, once, and they've used slightly different methodologies, so they're replicating each other, that t there was a 12% increase in suicide among boys. There was almost a 22% increase, this is deaths, suicide deaths, increase in among girls, and um, this was young people, between 10 and 19 year olds. There was no increase outside of this age range. The show was geared for young people, and unfortunately it was having a negative impact on young people. Second study found, again, a significant increase among 10 to 17 year olds. Again, no excess in other um, age groups. And then they had a control comparison because maybe all deaths were going up. So they looked at homicide deaths, and those didn't go up. Um, then there was another study that showed that suicide admissions for suicide attempt, uh, that admissions at, in EDs, emergency departments, for uh, suicide attempts had also increased. So now we're much more concerned about the inadvertent, unintentional impact of 13 Reasons Why. You know, if you look at the, the, um, the uh, series producers' comments and they have things online, they were trying to do good. I'm convinced of that. I don't, you know, I tend to be a more optimistic, you know, Pollyannish person. So I don't think that they were doing it to be, to sell their series. I really don't. I think that the people who were involved we're trying to raise the awareness and help people. And that today's talk is about we need to think how we raise awareness. We just need to be careful how we shape the narrative. And that uh, we've also done research that um, was in the context of examining about 50 suicide, youth suicide clusters in the US, comparing them to communities where there was also, unfortunately, a suicide, but it didn't lead to three or four or 11 subsequent suicides. And one of the things that we were examining was whether the media coverage of the first suicide in the, um, that, in the cluster, whether 
the coverage after that death was different than the coverage of the person's suicide that, you know, whose death didn't lead to a cluster. Um, and what we found was that, and we, you know, controlled, I won't go into all the epidemiologic methods that obviously I, that's what I spend my career on, but we controlled for, you know, the length of time and, you know, so on um, between stories. And that what we did find was that there was a significantly different number of suicide stories following the deaths by suicide that then had subsequent suicides and those that didn't. And that they, there were more suicide stories about any individual and then about the teens that were in our study. And so we looked at the characteristics of the stories and that um, not surprisingly, given what we had known anecdotally, is that the stories that were that seem to at least be associated with the initiation of a suicide cluster, that they were more likely to be on the front page, to have bigger headlines, to have the word suicide in the headline, to describe the methods, and um, give many more detailed descriptions of the suicidal individual in the act, as well as a picture and what we consider to be sensational, um, sensational headlines. So I'm talking about increases after exposure. There are also research um, studies that took advantage of what would be called, quote, natural experiments, that during a, me a newspaper strike, this is going back to the 1970s, there was actually a subsequent decrease in suicides. And then following the release of media, and this was called guidelines, it was in Vienna. In the US, I'll talk about recommendations, but in Vienna it was guidelines, um, and there was also a subsequent decrease. So these converse effects exist, but on a more hopeful um, and more recent research, and I say hopeful because it gives us strategies to shape the story, not to say don't, don't write about the story, but how do we write about the story? And what they found was, and it's something that they've now called the Papageno effect, so I think I'll just go onto this next slide because it, and for those of you who are listening in, I do have slides, I'm trying to cover all the content in my words as well. They did what's called a content analysis of about 500 uh, print media uh, reports. And um, what they found was, again, when there's a lot of repetitive reporting and the article is shaped all about the death, um, it, was led, it did lead to an increase. But what they also found, and it was a new finding, that when the story was focusing on coping strategies, that the people may have been suicidal, but they didn't engage in suicidal behavior. It described what they did to not engage in suicidal behavior, and they were stories of hope and recovery. They were associated with a significant decrease in suicides, deaths by suicide. So how you shape the story, how you shape the narrative can make the difference between influencing people in a way that you don't want to influence them, and others so that they seek help, that they engage in behaviors that will save them, and that will raise an awareness in a healthy way. And so this is just, um, again, for the people who are listening in, I have a slide that shows a very dramatic decrease in, after the implementation of media guidelines in Vienna 
These were guidelines that had been implemented in 1987, and that um, there was actually a 75% decrease in deaths by suicide. In Vienna, the most prevalent method was by um, deaths on their subway, and that's they aimed for that. Um, in the US, you know, this can be for questions and answers, the most prevalent method to die by suicide is by firearms. So if we do have recommendations, we need to, you know, address, you know, it's culturally um, specific how, you know, people will die by suicide as well. But with regard to the magnitude of the effect, again, the increase seems to be about between 10 and 12 percent. You know, we said, I already mentioned 10 percent after Robin Williams' death, after Marilyn Monroe's death, which now goes back decades, but for those of us who were alive and, and remember that, it was about a 12% a 12 increase after that. And again, though, a 75% decrease after these media recommendations. So there's overwhelming evidence that there's an impact of the media um, in many ways, but unfortunately, you know, with regard to spreading suicide contagion. But it's not a monolithic effect. And interactive factors exist with regard to the characteristics of the audience. So who's reading the story? Who's seeing the story? The story itself, as I'm hoping, the, really the message that I want to share today, that how you shape the story. And then the match between the audience and the story, that there is differential identification. There has been research about suicides in Japan. And if the victim is someone who's Japanese, the rates have gone up in, in Japan. That's about someone who's white. The rates didn't go up. You know, there was some ethnicity match. Um, after Netflix series 13 Reasons Why, we saw the increase in boys, but we saw the much higher increase among girls. And that's what I mean by differential, uh, dif differential identification. So what are the um, you know, implications for the media? Well, there are recommendations. And we say recommendations. Everything is voluntary. None of us want to um, do anything that would impinge on our rights, and certainly free speech. But you can still shape a message. And so the CDC, even at the, um, and I've been around a long enough time that I've been involved in these, uh, you know, these um, initiatives that in, in about 1990, the, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention published recommendations. They've been now up, um, updated. And so if you go to www.reportingonsuicide.org, so reportingonsuicide.org, very useful recommendations. They were developed with the input from media um, uh, professionals, including the Pointer Institute. And the point of safe messaging and these recommendations is to try to tip the balance of this media effect in favor of the Papageno effect rather than the Werther effect. So we can shape both the, the um, formatting content as well as the um, story content with regard to thinking twice before putting something on the, the front page or the size of the headlines or how the, um, the death is depicted, and include resources, including the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline numbers as a national number or local 
um, crisis hotline numbers or crisis text line. Another talk I could have given would, would have been on the, um, you know, the evaluation of crisis hotlines and that we have substantial evidence that they are saving people's lives every day. So that if you have that valuable resource, put it in, put it in the, the story. But that's not enough. You can't publish a story that sensationalizes suicide, that glamorizes suicide, and then think that by putting in a crisis line number that it's going to make you know, everything safe and useful. So I do apologize to the people who are listening in because I have two last slides and they show pictures. Um, so I'll try to describe it. For those of you in the audience, you can hopefully see why we were upset by this. Um, there was a um, you know, cluster of suicides in Palo Alto. They've been very public about it, otherwise I wouldn't be mentioning it. And um, some of the coverage has been um, useful, and then some has been like this in San Francisco Magazine, where it has this very graphic picture of train tracks, which unfortunately is the myth, right? You look at that and go, whoa, look at these train tracks. And then, you know, the, even the, you know, it's not talking about all the things that they've done, because they've gone out there, really such helpful things that the community have done to, um, to address the problems that are common in, I would say, all um, communities. This is why are Palo Alto's kids killing themselves? And you know, then talking about it suddenly um, became an option. And so it presents um, a story in ways that we don't think are helpful. In, right? You read this and go, no, this is not a helpful. This is not a helpful way to talk about something. And um, in contrast, you know, I'm so delighted when I find these examples, and more and more now we do find helpful examples. This was in um, the New York Times as an op-ed piece, and it was in, I think, if my eye can still see, you can probably see it better than I can. Thank you, <laughs> 2015. Um, where the headline is no longer wanting to die. And that you may not, you know, as you look at the picture, this character is turning away from sort of the darkness and death and looking towards light. And then in the story itself, it's in, which is why I just wanted to highlight it, depression is treatable and suicide is treatable, is preventable. Don't lose hope, you're not alone. I, too, once firmly believed that I was broken beyond repair, but I was wrong. Now, that's the message that we want to share. And that's why I am so pleased to be presenting to all of you today, but in an um, institution that so has protected our freedom of speech, because when it comes to speaking about suicide prevention, like this, right? Depression is treatable, suicide is preventable. Don't lose hope. That can save people's lives. That 
hopefully will start to decrease the stigma of help seeking for mental health problems and for suicide so that people do call the, the crisis hotline, so that they do see a mental health professional, so that they do tell their parent or a teacher. So that's where I will stop and um, you know, open it up for question and answer period. And thank you again for giving me this opportunity to, to share this with you today. Thank you, Dr. Gould. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here at the City Club, and today we're listening to a forum with Dr. Madeline Gould, the Irving Phillips Professor of Epidemiology and Psychiatry at Columbia University Medical Center. Um, she, uh, Dr. Gould mentioned uh, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. I want to provide that number right now as well for our listeners on the radio, 1-800-273-8255, 1-800-273-8255. Eight two five five. You can also text to seven four one seven four one. That's twice seven four one seven four one. We're about to begin the audience Q and A, and we welcome questions from everyone. And we have our first question, please. Good afternoon. Uh, I wanted to know that show thirteen reasons why was it? Did your research show it was helpful to the parents? Because from personal experience, I know someone who watched it whose kid was having problems, and it really raised her awareness, and she got the child into therapy, and the kid is doing better now. Yeah, no, I think that's a wonderful point, that um, the research so far has not yet reported on um, the impact on parents. And I'm not saying you know, at least hopefully I didn't want you to get the impression that there may have been instances like that. We need to find out to what extent did that happen so that we know in terms of the, the benefit and the risk from that program. There has been research, though, um, that I didn't share that interviewed youth that had come into um, emergency departments and psychiatric departments for mental health problems with regard to their viewing habits about the show, and that for the most part, they tended to view it by themselves. They're much more likely to view it by themselves than with their parents. You know, if you have a show like this and the parent is watching it and sort of, sh again, I keep using the same expression, but shaping the narrative with their, you know, with their child, it probably would have been, hopefully, would have been, you know, um, useful. But the fact that young people tended to watch these shows by themselves increases the risk. But, you know, perhaps next year, and then I'll, I'll let Dan know, and so he can share with all of you, um, although many of you are in the same community that I'm in, in terms of mental health, um, you know, environments. Maybe there'll be a study that then shows um, that parents were helped. But with regard to deaths by suicide, all things else being, you know, uh, possible. Uh, I wasn't going to say being equal, but being possible for the for the folks who were helped. We see that the rates of suicide, deaths by suicide in this age group increased. So overall, it did seem to do more harm than good, 
But that's not saying that there weren't some individuals that, that were helped. Because we want to rate, see if the story had focused, at least had a bigger component that showed successful help seeking, that showed at least some models, well how do you reach out to your school guidance counselor and then not get ignored? Or how do you reach out to a parent and then you both work the problems out together? Then we wouldn't be that concerned, but maybe that will be the focus of season three. Season two wasn't, honestly, wasn't all that much better. They were a little better with, I mean, I could go into the concerns that we have about, about that. But, you know, we're still having faith that maybe season three will be. I don't know, how many of you have, wa have saw it, actually? Yeah, substantial number. And did you watch season two as well? Well, I watched season two. Oh boy, if you watch season two, there's that last, just, I won't do a spoiler alert. I'll just say, don't watch it alone, which is what I did. And I'm an, quite an adult here, right? And I found that last episode really upsetting. Oh, I'm not the one who calls on you all. Somebody, <laughs> I was gonna say, oh yes, you could speak now. <laughs> Good afternoon, my name is Merle Johnson. I'm on the Ohio Board of Education. And I'm very concerned about the number of children who are committing suicide as a result of bullying, yes. and especially the cyberbullying. Yeah. Uh, I've read about children as, as young as eight years old committing suicide. Right. Um, do you have any numbers? Is, has there been an increase? It seems like there's more and more. Has there been an increase in children who are committing suicide as a direct result of the school bullying and the cyberbullying? And also, does that lead to suicide contagion? Yeah, that's been a particular focus of some of my research, and that um, I had what's called a, a postdoc, who was, uh, you know, postdoctoral fellow, who was uh, working with me, and then um, so she's really been focusing on uh, bullying. But we added to some of our school surveys because, you know, about 15 years ago we weren't even aware. I mean, we knew people were bullied, but we didn't know about the association of bullying and suicide. It's clearly associated. Again, it's one of the contributing factors. There are many unfortunately, many contributing factors, but fortunately, most people who get bullied don't go on to attempt suicide or die by suicide. So that even though it's associated, and it's a serious problem, and I don't want to under-emphasize the seriousness, especially of, of cyberbullying as well, but I always want to give the message, most people don't kill themselves. It's a you know, given a horrendous number of, you know, stressful life events. We have to address the, the bullying, but we don't want to see some of the messaging, and then I'll get back specifically to your question. We've seen messaging that says bully side. It trivializes the, the complexity of suicide, and it also gives the message, well, if I'm bullied, I, I kill myself or if I'm bullied, I engage in suicidal behavior. So that's, you know, it's, I'm trying to finesse a complicated situation that it's absolutely associated with suicide. Whether it's contributing to a greater proportion number of, you know, proportion of suicides, that we don't know. Um, but with regard to cyberbullying, um, unfortunately, young people, don't have as many safe spaces mm -hmm. as they used to have. That when they were being bullied 
physically at school, that at least when they got home, they weren't subjected to the same noxious be, you know, behaviors that were happening at school. And now they sleep with the phone next to them, which is probably one of the first things that we should have parents be advised to change, both for sleep deprivation reasons and the fact that this thing is binging all the time and that they can be subject to cyberbullying. So there's a lot of attention now. And with regard to um, school programming, that suicide prevention is one thing that's critical, but it can be, it can be um, developed and implemented within better citizenship. You know, I'm using a term that probably really dates me, but um, <laughs> it really does date me. But there, these risk factors very often go together. And so in a, an envi a school environment that isn't addressing bullying probably isn't addressing a lot of the problems that are impacting on kids. But to get back to your question, so that at least I, you all know that I've given the answer, it's absolutely a significant association. It probably increases the likelihood that someone dies by suicide or engages in suicidal behavior by threefold. But again, most kids who are bullied, you know, don't engage in suicidal behavior. I have a comment and a question. Uh, my name is Leslie Koblenz, and I'm the chief clinical officer for our mental health and addiction board, Adams. So I trained as a lawyer and a psychiatrist. Sometimes I look at things a little bit differently. My first question, well, comment is I wanted to tell you how much I appreciated this lecture and your hypotheses, because when I trained in the early 2000s, we looked for those red flags of people thinking that, you know, that maybe they're gonna commit suicide. They give away this, they give away that. But as your slide pointed out, quote unquote, suddenly it became an option. So I'm hoping that in the residency at Columbia and places across the country, they're starting to take this broader look as things, you know, with social media are affecting the young people, because in the two, early 2000s, we didn't do any of this, really. Right. And my question to you is, you mentioned that suicide is often done by firearms. I have never had, in our state, somebody contact me, even when I was a resident, when I've taken care of people in, in the psyche or whatever, never been contacted by any agency you know, uh, this person, you know, signed this form so they're never allowed to buy a firearm. And I know you can get firearms on every street corner. But is there anything that New York does where you're located about that with somebody who's severely and, you know, persistently mentally ill so that they can't buy a firearm? So I'll address the comment and the, the firearm question. Um, just because in terms of an option, or we were talking about changes in social norms. Just wanted to bring, we're not, again, exactly sure if it's causative, but younger girls are st 
starting to, they, everybody, there was always some suicide in young girls, but it was very, very rare. And it's still rare, but the rates of, have increased substantially in that there were some slides that could have shown that we were very concerned about social media and examples of posts by young girls, perhaps influencing other young girls. So again, it's just, I'm just underscoring the comment that you made. With regard to firearms, that is a, talk about a tough topic to talk about in the United States, not other countries. Um, so I'll first talk about things that we can do that I think are helpful, so that when residents are being trained, that they ask about, are there firearms in the home? And that there needs to be safe storage. You know, I'm not gonna get into a political discussion. I will say that the Centers for Disease Control will not, are not allowed to fund research programming that would impact, act, you know, or having guns or right to guns. Some of us feel differently about our right to free speech and a right to have guns, but the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they're not allowed to. So that in, the, in our country, not this impacts many, the reluctance to deal with firearm deaths, whether it's suicide or you know, homicide or, and so on, is a very, very serious problem. But there are things that we can do about it for suicide prevention, so safe storage. Asking, there's, residents aren't, they weren't taught to even ask about if there's a, a, a firearm. Um, with regard to access to firearms by people who are known to the, you know, different mental health, let's say, care systems, that's, you know, um, so I'm not gonna give the, what, I, what an answer is. I'm just gonna talk about sort of the difficulties in that. Like at what point do you label somebody as, so this is in the case of firearms, but it, it's talking about this person to sort of, forever, I mean, people do recover. And I think that's what we need to, that's a message that we need to share. People can recover from a mental illness, from a crisis in the same way that decades ago people would think that once you, you know, the big C, once you had cancer, that was the end, you know, or, or um, AIDS, right? We, now it's, it's become a chronic problem. So people can recover from a mental illness. So at what point do you label them as someone who can never, ever, 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 in this case, have a gun? So, I, but in New York State, our, you know, our governor did, there is, you know, there actually has been emphasis, but then it's then how do you screen? How do you identify the, like, it's that whole identification purpose, but, you know, idea. But there now is much more of a national movement with regard to highlighting the, um, impact of our free access to firearms on suicide. And that the states that have less liberal, you know, have 
I mean, that have liberal laws with regard to access have much higher rates of, of suicide. I mean, it just goes, it's like almost a perfect correlation um, that the, the states like New York and New Jersey, I mean, we have the lowest rates. Now, there's also access to mental health care and you know, so many other things. But yes, New York State did enact it, but it's difficult because many of the mental health professionals were upset with regard to how to identify, you know, then you want to have like very, very good classification of someone before you start labeling them and we'll stick with them forever, right? And then it totally negates what I'm talking about with regard to recovery. And it probably increases the stigma because most people with mental illness do not engage in um, violent behavior, but that's what we read about in the news. And so it increases people's fear and um, stigma about mental illness. And then who's going to admit that you ever had a mental illness if then people are going to think that you're going to engage in a school shooting or something like that? Yeah. Hi. Um, I, I reside in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and my kids go to an international school in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, and the only reason I heard about 13 Reasons Why is that I got an email from the school informing me about it and saying, you know, you should be out watching out for it. Obviously, someone mobilized educators oh, on yes. a global basis. Mm -hmm. Who was that, and how did they do that? Oh, okay. Oh, that's a great question. That there... When I said, you know, that slide that showed the concerns, all of a sudden the mental health community and the suicide prevention community worked hand in hand with folks from the departments of education. So that's the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, the, um, the American Association of Suicidology, uh, SAVE, S-A-V-E, which is in um, Minnesota, and um, his name is Dan Reidenberg, has been... Um, He's really at the forefront of, of working with media, working with um, educational departments in terms of safe messaging. So there was a concerted effort to try to counter what people were, you know, to counter the impact of 13 Reasons Why, and thought what better way to do it than work with the schools who then in turn would, you know, contact parents. And, um, you know, I would hazard a guess that it did some, that it probably did some good. And as the, you know, earlier question was showing that if a parent was aware of the show and then watched it and brought up questions about their, you know, with their kids or said, you know, what was distressing to you and what wasn't distressing to you. But when push comes to shove, we do have these increases in deaths. But with regard to who was involved in that, yeah, there were suicide prevention organizations. And that you may want to look, you know, you may want to become active. You know, for those of you who are, you know, really um, passionate about this area, there are suicide prevention organizations in the U United States that you can become, in, you know, involved in, again, in including the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, the, um, the American Association of Suicidology, save, and then internationally, there's an International Association for Suicide Prevention that um, is trying to prevent suicide you know, across the globe, because it's a, it's a global 
a global problem. But with regard to the increases that we're seeing in the US, they're not seeing that globally anymore to the same, that rates are going down. So there's something unique about the United States, and I would hazard a guess that it may have to do with our easy access to, to firearms in the United States. Um, and there have been some studies internationally and in the US, and unfortunately, they're not having much of an impact. I know, right? But the dissemination hasn't been as concerted as the development of it. And then with regard to clusters, just because I, I think our time is running out, that um, clusters is when you get an excessive number, uh, well, there are different types of clusters. There are clusters in time after media events. So that, that it could be anywhere, right? If there's a story on social media, it could impact you know, millions and millions of people. Then there's what I was doing research on that are called point clusters, in that they're in both time and space. So you get an excessive number of suicides compared to what you would have expected for a particular time in, let's say, a, a town. And um, they tend to be youth, more, let's say, younger than 24. You can get them across the age span, but it's rare. It really is a, a public health problem among, among young people. But they're very rare. They're probably, at least according to our estimates, about five in the US per year, but they tend to traumatize a community. As you can imagine, if you're living in a community and you're having five young people die by suicide, you know, within six months or, you know, within a month, because um, we've seen those instances as well. And um, we've done re recent um, research that will be coming out that seems to indicate that they're increasing as well over time, over the past few decades, in the same way that the rates have gone up of suicide that, you know, was mentioned at, at the begin at my introduction or introduction of me. Um, and what we see is that it crosses all socioeconomic categories, crosses all, in terms of suicide clusters, and suicide as well, all actually ethnicities, suicide in the, in the US, the, the rates are higher among white people, but those rates are, you know, getting closer and closer each year. Um, and that the idea of having like a suicide prone town, you know, for a cluster, which is how they've described Palo Alto and various things, is absurd. Because unfortunately, there are vulnerable people in every community. Now, the rates are higher among, you know, Native Americans. They just are, um, both by the, the rates of suicide, you know, are so much higher among folks who have been exposed to cultural trauma, individual trauma, and um, they tend to have more suicide clusters as, as well and that um, we do think that some of the mechanisms that underlie clusters you know, also involve changing of norms. And um, you know, clearly, as I talk about trauma, and I think your last talk was on rape and so on, you know, when things are you know, difficult 
especially when there aren't resources. You need treatment resources. And that you may have a city like New York that is overwhelming with, you know, I mean, overflowing with mental health providers, although not who will take your insurance. So that's a whole other issue, too. But I think that, sorry for that little political thing here. <laughs> Hope I don't get into trouble. Today at the City Club, we've been listening to a forum with Dr. Madeline Gould. She's the Irving Phillips Professor of Epidemiology and Psychiatry at Columbia University Medical Center. That brings us to the end of our forum today. Thank you, Dr. Gould. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland. Our forum is adjourned. Have a wonderful weekend. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.